Hey everybody, we are back. As always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Associates. Who are Cathcart Associates? I hear you scream. Well, we're a technology recruitment company set up by two of the UK's most successful recruiters um, around 10 years ago. We've grown organically from three people to about 40, uh, working across technology and renewable energy, um, mainly from our Edinburgh HQ, but with further bases in Manchester, Leeds, Bristol, Helsinki, um, and a very successful Bangkok office as well. Um, So thank you to them for helping make this all a reality. So today on the show, um, we've got another double act. Uh, We have Tom Stockton and Matt Squire, two founding members of Manchester-based AI consultancy Fuzzy Labs. Both are great guys, uh, have a stellar track record in working um, in the world of technology, um, and relatively recently decided to go alone, so I was keen to get them on and uh, kind of tell their story, really. Um, So, yeah, please welcome to How AI Built This, Tom Stockton and Matt Squire. Welcome, Matt and Tom, to the podcast. Thank you. I know we've talked about it for a while, and uh, I can't remember. Matt, when you spoke at uh, Mankimel, I don't think this podcast had started yet, had it? That was a while ago, right? It was It was um, a twinkle in your eye, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was something I thought about for a long time, and then never really had uh, the bottle to do anything about it. But yeah, no, I, I remember back uh, back when you did that, I thought it would be cool to get you guys on, especially because it's the two of you at kind of early stages. So I thought it would be really interesting. So everyone that already listens knows that we always kind of kick off on education. So we'll kind of go through that. So Matt, I was having a look the other day and you kind of come from very much a computer science background, right? So you did computer science at Newcastle and then um, a master's at York in natural computation. Yes, that's right. So in a former life, I was I wanted to be an academic. That was actually at the time, the the route I wanted to go down. My master's was quite interesting in the, so this natural computation thing, what on earth is that? It's not about, um, you know, homeopathy or something crazy like that. It's about taking ideas from the natural world and understanding how they could be used to improve computation. So neural networks is an obvious example of that. We take how the brain works, how that structure works, and then figure out how we can build AI out of that. You've also got things like artificial immune systems, which are modeled on our immune system. You have evolutionary algorithms where you have a population of solutions to a problem and you gradually improve them. So all of that kind of thing. And this fascinated me at the time. It still fascinates me now. However, I think once I got into the, the real world, so to speak, and starting my first job as a software engineer, I realized that there's a great deal I don't know about software engineering, basically none of it. And <laughs> actually, I got quite quite excited about mm. having the, the ability to pull out the maths tool set when I needed it, but also learning about how to do the engineering and how to actually build these things and make them scale and make them work. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's one of my questions. Actually, was going to be um, once you decided to do the masters, was there a thought in your mind of like a PhD and then a career in academia? So obviously, you said there was, but yeah, then when you got into a kind of an internship and into the real world, kind of did that just kind of take over in terms of your uh, your fascination? Yes, yes. I I was probably a little bit young and naive in my thinking about PhD funding as well. That, that there's definitely that because I had a 
what I wanted to do for a PhD was this very obscure corner of research that nobody actually cares about. And it's, it's not even cool anymore. What, what it was 10 years ago, people thought it would, oh, this would be interesting. I think nowadays no one thinks that particular problem is interesting anymore. So, of course, no one would fund that. But I think it wasn't just that. It was academia was the only thing I'd experienced at the time. And so going into engineering and learning to, to build software from pretty much from scratch was a very worthwhile experience. I'm glad, in hindsight, that I didn't just go straight into academia and do the PhD thing, because I think I would be less well-rounded. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. So we've had these conversations back and forward about um, people that have either done no university, they've done some, they've went to do masters, they've done a PhD, and everyone's got a slightly different viewpoint on it. But I think everyone agrees that it's just kind of like whatever's right for for that person at that time. So no, I'm, I'm glad that that worked out. And then Tom, just quickly on you, you did a bachelor's in physics, right? So, I mean, my sales director would argue the most important degree of all time doing something in physics. Yeah, people say that. I mean, it was 20 years ago, so do not ask me anything physics-related now. I think I get credibility for a physics degree that I don't necessarily deserve. Um, I got, I mean, I got through the thing, and I was good at maths at the time. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I got a degree. I've got a certificate to show. Um, but I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm interested in it, but it was never something I wanted to pursue. And at the time, this was 20 years ago, the internet was just getting going. Yeah. And... Um, that was the thing that was exciting for me. I wanted to get into that. Like I saw, I remember seeing a guy with like a black screen writing commands on a terminal. I was like, what, what is this? I want, I want to do that. Whatever he's typing on that screen, I want to type those things and be in charge of the internet. And, um, some you know, lofty like, goals as a graduate. Well, yeah, but it was just so exciting. Like the, the internet was this huge thing of unknown. So, yeah, so I got my degree and it was the dot-com boom at the time and there was, everyone was talking about doing, doing IT and I thought, well, if I can vaguely understand physics I can, and some, you know, how, how, how that works, I think I can follow how another human being put together some computer code. That was my naive, my naive, way, naive way of thinking about that. So <laughs> no, I like that. Um, and yeah, we're going to jump straight into kind of what you started with then. So um, you finished up the degree and then... Um, working as a technical engineer, right? So doing kind of Unix system support. Yeah, basically, yeah, getting into Unix and Linux. And it was Unix. It was like an old-style Unix to start with, uh, Solaris, which I don't know if it's even going anymore. Some microsystems building hardware, building servers. Yeah. And then I found Linux and open source, and that was, for me, what you know what I wanted to do. And I'd spend my evenings with my own computer in my, my, my student flat in Leeds. Um, with my own corner of the internet that I was looking after, I had my own domain name and on my own modem. And then I... Got a job working for an internet service provider, um, and then I sort of was more into the internet. You know, they had this huge server room, all these really smart guys doing doing clever things with routers and lights flashing, and that was that was it really. Yeah, no, nice. And you kind of stayed in that that kind of realm and ended up being kind of head of IT services, ops manager, um, kind of senior roles. Did, did that just kind of make sense to for your career that you started in some of the technical work and then just worked your way up to be more senior? Yeah, I, I mean. I, I, I progressed, I suppose, quite quickly on, on from a technical side, and then it's a, a natural progression to start doing bigger things and managing teams. But to be honest, a, a management role never really suited me. I mean, I, I did it, um, but I think in my at the age I was, I was probably too young to manage people. I didn't have enough life experience to to do that well. So I was probably more suited, better suited to a technical role. Did you miss some of the technical role while you were being a manager quite early on? 
yeah, definitely. I, know, I was, I was, I was out of my comfort zone because I didn't, you know, you, you don't know what you're doing with 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 anything when you first start doing it. And certainly, certainly managing people. And I, I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a geek at heart, really. I'm an introvert. I like, I like hacking away with stuff. And um, yeah, I, I like to be hands on. And even now, you know, with, with, we'll move on to it, I suppose. But with fuzzy labs, it's a good. We need to have the right balance, I suppose, to, to be energized in the right way. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And then I think kind of the the latter part, or, or kind of the the kind of more recent things you did before setting up with with Matt, um, you were kind of working as a contractor, right, rather than working in places perm. So you were going in to help companies. I think doing mostly DevOps work. Yeah, DevOps. So we t- so sysadmin turned into DevOps, I suppose, late two thousands. So we'd go from writing scripts, and then all of a sudden, configuration management tools like Puppet and Chef turned up, and cloud computing started becoming a big thing. And I went from spending time in data centers to writing more code and learning language like Python and, and Ruby and, and, um, and just automating a lot more stuff. So I've not been in a data, a data center for 10 years and, yeah, contracting um, for a few different clients, one of which was where I met Matt yeah. uh, at Cake Solutions, and we did some really interesting projects there. I have a question for you then. Hopefully you can answer it. You just did some of it there, but one of the, my biggest pet peeves in the world of IT recruitment, apart from saying someday we need someone to do AI, is that we need someone to do DevOps. Yeah. Um, and then they don't really tell you what they mean or how they're set up. So is there an easy way of explaining to people what DevOps is, or is it dependent on how each company or tech team set themselves up? Well, Pete, sometimes you can focus on, on a particular technology. So you can say DevOps is this technology or it's, it's this other thing. But I think the overall principle of it is to enable deploying your software as efficiently and quickly as possible. That, that's the end goal of it. If a developer can write some code and commit it and have it automatically tested and deployed, then that's the, the, the DevOps job is done. So the tooling is, is the thing that enables that. So you've got things like Docker, containerization, cloud computing, infrastructure as code, CI, CD. Um, these are all the tools that, that make that happen. And, and there's loads of different ways of doing it. So, But that's ultimately what you want to get to, is be able to commit your code and have it deployed. Sorry, I don't want to jump in there, but it's, it's a very, no, interesting, right. jump in very interesting comparison you make there, Lillian, between DevOps and AI, because you know I, I remember when there was this transition from people not talking about DevOps to suddenly everybody's talking about DevOps. And... I can imagine in a lot of companies, the way it goes down, especially maybe some of the more entrenched traditional companies, somebody high up hears about, oh, there's this new trend in technology. It's DevOps. We should be doing this. But just just declaring we should be doing this isn't really enough to even get started actually adopting it. And, you know, without then having some direction from someone who's actually been down that journey and been able to apply it, you're not really going to get very far. You're just going to say it's all aspiration rather than reality. And I guess you, you make that comparison deliberately because AI is probably in a similar position. Yeah, no, 100%. And I suppose either of you could probably answer this, but in terms of where DevOps, DevOps sits in an organization, is it better suited to be kind of right next to the software development team or right next to what you'd maybe class as the infrastructure team from from previous positions? I mean, for me, it's got to sit with the software team. If you have it with the infrastructure team, you've, you've created another silo, wall, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, it's, got to be, it's got to be a software capability. So, yeah, in theory, a software engineer can, can do all the DevOps they need to do. I mean, there's an argument to say they don't need all that extra stuff in the head as well as writing the application code. 
um, but they, they still need to have some level of awareness of how it works. And I think the DevOps engineer or the infrastructure team are providing tools for the, for those software engineers to, to consume. I 100% yeah, okay. agree. Yeah. And it's about empowering those developers to be, to take responsibility for productionizing their code rather than taking that responsibility away from them, which I think disempowers more than anything. Quite a common thing to see traditional sysadmin or infrastructure teams just rebranded as DevOps. And they yeah. work in the same way in their own groups. They've still got the same um, poor communication with the software developers, but they're just, they're just using different tools. Yeah, no, we see that quite a lot. I mean, the way that we're structured is that we've got software development consultants who look after all of our software development roles for clients and then infrastructure consultants who look after infrastructure. But the way that it's worked is that infrastructure kind of falls under quite a lot now. So whether it used to be kind of like first, second, third line network type work, now it kind of encompasses some DevOps, some cloud work, some traditional work. Like it's almost like it's become a little bit messier in that infrastructure world where maybe it shouldn't. Yeah. Personally, I think I think DevOps compared to writing software, DevOps is easy. I mean, I can't I couldn't write, do a software um, engineer's job. I, I can't do what Matt does. Matt can do what I can do. I think if Matt knows what he's got, what 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 tools he's going to use, I think the part of this the skill is choosing the right tools and and doing them in a in a concise way um, that, that other people can, use, can, can consume them. I think Tom's being slightly overly humble here. <laughs> um, and then I suppose, Tom, this isn't really, I wasn't hugely going to focus on it, but it's potentially interesting as well. Um, did you decide to kind of go contracting to work in different organizations and not have like a boss, so to speak? I didn't, that's not why I did it. I fell into it because I was living in, spent two years living in Australia. Where about? Melbourne. Oh, nice. My favorite city in the world. Oh, yeah, you're right there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's living the dream every day. Yeah, I lived um, there for about nine months, I think, and it was very close to permanently moving and then decided it was too far away for family and all that other stuff. Yeah, it was a tough call. It was a tough call. Moving back to the northwest of England in, in winter was pretty, pretty, pretty grim, actually. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I came back and, and the company I was working for over there, they wanted me to keep working with them, so it made sense to set up as an independent as a contractor and um and, and once you're in the flow of contracting and doing your own accounts and and uh doing the things you don't normally have to do as a as a permanent employee it becomes second nature and and then yeah you appreciate the flexibility of of not being tied to a specific company but um having the flexibility to work in your own way and and, and see different things um you don't get bogged down in the politics uh, of uh of big companies yeah, did you find that a bit easier when you're a contractor to kind of like go and do what you've been asked to do and then you don't really have to worry about like what's happening higher up? Basically, yeah. I mean, you, it's not that you don't care, but it's, you know, if you, you do what you can in the day. You give your opinion, you, your advice, and if if, um, if they like it, great. If they don't, that's their choice. They've paid the money for it, so. Yeah, no, fair enough. And then, Matt, like we said, you, you kind of very much come from a software engineering background, so I think you started in Nottingham, right, kind of doing work on VoIP systems, mostly kind of C++, Python to start off with. Is that right? Yes. That was my first job, and I definitely fell into it. In that <laughs> I had, So I had some friends in the Nottinghamshire area who I've known for a while. I knew someone at the company, and that's how I got the job. It's always the way that, well, if you know somebody, then you can get an entry-level job somewhere much more easily than you might otherwise. So... I got into that, and I think that was the the experience that I mentioned earlier of 
going from this academic world to learning how the reality of engineering software and getting it to production and making sure that it works in production, making sure that the customers are happy, learning all of that is, is what I what I did there. And I think that was more important than the particular application. It, it happened to be VoIP. That's not something I've done since. It's not something I remember much of. So if anyone asks me, you know, oh, can you help us with this VoIP problem? Can you integrate this um, telephone system? You know, I'm probably not the person to go to for that. Because, <laughs> you know, I only did it for a little while. But what I did learn from that, I like to think, is how to work together in an engineering team, how to deliver features, how to deal with situations that you just don't expect where stuff is broken, the customer's upset, and it's just got to be fixed. Yeah, okay. And from a language perspective, um, were those kind of C++, Python, was that what you'd been learning at university, or were you quite interested in the fact that it was something new? I had done some C++ at university, but... I would argue that you don't learn to program at university, really. You you might learn a little bit of several different programming languages, and you learn a great deal about algorithms, data structures, computation in general, but you're not going to come out of university being able to dive into a production C++ code base and be as productive as someone who's already been there for a few years. So I had done a little bit of C++ before and a little bit of Python, but I had to learn quite a lot on the job. Yeah, okay. And I'm sure we'll get to this in a little bit, but do you think that the languages you're working with as a developer are hugely relevant in someone's skill set, or is it more their ability to kind of problem solve, essentially? It's more the ability to problem solve, but I tend to look for developers, particularly when I've been hiring, I will look for people who have had a variety of exposure. You know, maybe they've done some Scala or Haskell, even in their spare time. Maybe they've shown an interest in something crazy like Prolog or APL or anything, really. Or, you know, they've done some Lisp. And the reason is that someone who has that varied experience has probably got the curiosity to look into difficult problems and uncharted territory and try and solve those problems. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I mean, again, one of the pet peeves we can find when we're recruiting for people is that they kind of, if they want a, a C-sharp developer, they want them with six years' experience of C-sharp and it doesn't really matter if they've worked with Java before or whatever they might have worked with yeah, in the past. Yeah. Whereas I'm, see, I'm certainly seeing a shift from clients now that are saying more and more they don't really care what language they've been using. It's more, and even when they're doing the tech test now, it'll be, you can do it where, however you like to do it. And that's um, a big to me. You know, I, yeah. I think that in, in your case with the C-sharp developer, I would rather take the, the Java dev or someone else who's demonstrated that they're actually interested in programming and problem solving, and then they can pick anything up. Yeah, I know. We have we have debates all the time. Uh, I mean, one of the guys in the office mostly deals with contractors, actually, but kind of even looking at some of the JavaScript libraries and the obsession people have with one particular JavaScript library opposed to just the ability to program. Mm. And things move um, so fast, you know, that you, you, there's no point in being a specialist in this particular thing. You're just not, you'll just be left behind. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And we'll get on to kind of some of the um, experience both you guys have hiring as well, because I think that'll be interesting. And then uh, Tom mentioned that you guys met at Cake Solutions. So you kind of joined just before Tom, where I think it was still a startup. I think when we talked last oh, time, you said there, were, so. there, were, there was yeah. a few people there, basically. 
I, I think 15 people were in the company when I joined. Um, and what was the what what was the company uh, like? What, what were they doing at that time? Like, why why did you join them? I joined them because they had started using this Scala language, which at the time not many people had really heard of. So they were they were interesting because they were doing something different. You know, doing more C plus plus or more Java didn't really grab me. While what Cape Solutions were doing is saying, okay. We're going to specialize in this new upcoming language. It's a functional programming language. It's strongly typed. It's interesting, and people are doing interesting things with it. So they, you know, and I can't think of the kinds of clients they had at the time. Biometrics, they had a biometrics project on. That was exciting because there was a bit of AI in that as well. They had um, a few other little bits and pieces, but they were all quite interesting projects using interesting technologies. Yeah. Um, and when you think back to what it was when you joined to what it was when you left, I mean, how different was that? How big a shift was it in the end? Yeah, it was... Um, I, can, I can see Tom smiling, so I imagine quite a lot. <laughs> definitely a lot. The Death Star was on the wall when we left. The Death Star was on the wall when we left, that's true. That's how different it was. Pick <laughs> Solutions grew from 15 people when I started to on the order of 100, I think, when I left. And they had offices in London and New York and Manchester at that point. So they were acquired by Disney about a year before I left. So I, I saw some of the the absorption into Disney into a much, much larger business. And it's inevitable that a company will change. But, you know, that being bought by the biggest company in the world or one of the biggest companies in the world, it's going to change you. And, and yeah. Did you enjoy that kind of progression, though, from like 15 to maybe, let's say, 30, then 50, yeah. then like it gets up to the point where you're like, oh, my God, this is actually like a big company. It's, it was it's, looking back. It's one of the best things I've done. You almost don't realize it's happening while you're there. But yeah, yeah I mean, I, you know, I started off as essentially a junior software engineer. But towards the end, I was involved in hiring people. I was helping to build that team. I was um, leading some of the technical teams as well. So for me personally, to, to go on that journey was fantastic. And to help and watch that company grow to what it became was, um, yeah, like I say, it was one of the best things I've done. Yeah. And then, um, so Tom, you kind of came in as well to, to Cave Solutions when they were still relatively small. You were doing DevOps work for them, right? Yeah. So I joined, they just won a big contract with Money Supermarket. And I think this was a step up in terms of the kind of, solutions they were delivering from just software to adding adding cloud and DevOps and stuff as well. And they didn't really have a DevOps capability or cloud capability at the time. So I joined to, to help them build that. And yeah, Money Supermarket was, was the first big project we did that on. And we carried on and did a few other things with them. We did the Money Saving Expert. In fact, Matt and I worked on Money Saving Expert together. Um, we worked with McLaren, Formula One, did some stuff there. Um, then they started branching out into America and working with some American clients. And they were really tough in terms of some of their requirements they, they really scrutinized what you did but but we like that you know we liked we liked the the critique and the feedback on you know somebody looking at every line of your code and making sure it was up to scratch was was a good thing and the good thing about cake it was really progressive you know they they were happy to to look at what was the best technology at the time for each project it wasn't like they were recycled it might be more might be better margin if they recycled the um the, the technology every time but we looked for the best solution for every project and gave the client that thing and just, I think um, it's worth 
from from a, from my point of view, watching Matt's progression because I met Matt when I first joined, and um, from when I joined, seeing Matt so how he was when when we left. I mean, it's incredible transition. I mean, Matt was like a I don't know how to describe you a bit of a goth, proper no. trench coat, a bit of a goth. Yeah, no. <laughs> it was just a trench coat, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but then Lenny, like as progress, you know, then he started doing talks and managing teams, and he started buying clothes and and dressing nice, and got an apartment in town. And you know, by the by the time we left, it's a completely different person. That's cool, though, and I think that's part of the, what you just said, Matt. You don't even notice it's happening. Like you went mm-hmm. from junior junior software engineer to suddenly being in charge and making big decisions. So like it just kind of happens. Um, and Tom, you mentioned using the best tools for the job. I, I, I mean, I've not worked in big consultancies, but I imagine sometimes that's not the case where they do just kind of like copy and paste what they've done before. Is that quite nice from your point of view, working in that kind of DevOps world that you got exposed to maybe like AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, and then other different tools that maybe you wouldn't have got elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's always more interesting to go and do something you've not done before, but then you've got to balance that with value for the client and fiddling for the sake of fiddling. Um, so, but there's definitely been, I mean, there's a shift in technology. You know, when I first joined Cake, the DevOps solution at the time was writing configuration management tools like Puppet and Chef. But then Docker came out, became a big thing while we were there. And... Um, and from then on, you know, we, we didn't write any any config management at all. We wouldn't, you know, really deal with any service. It was all about containers. And then eventually Kubernetes has sort of come and taken over um, as like the, as the forerunning container management system. But, yeah, going through that journey has been really interesting. And and now, it, I mean, we'll move on to Fuzzy Labs, I suppose. But we're sort yeah. of seeing another progression now to, towards serverless, which is like the next generation of it. Yeah, no, it'd be good to talk about that, actually. But, um was there any, I mean, Matt, you mentioned this already, there was some AI work you did, but was there any kind of big data projects that almost kind of inspired what is now Fuzzy Labs? Yes, that's certainly the case. And we can get into the inspiration. I mean, there are probably some details that I'd maybe keep quiet <laughs> um, in terms of the specifics at Cake. It's yeah. also worth, worth underlining just following on from some of the things Tom was saying that what made Cape Solutions a success more than anything was this self-fulfilling situation they had where they would work on really interesting technologies, really interesting problems, and as a result, they would attract really good people. And then the really good people would say, okay, well, there's this new thing. Let's, let's try and use this. Let's try and solve this problem in a new way. And it feeds itself. So for me probably one of the biggest inspirations to take from cake is is that it's you need really fantastic people and then to give them the the um the freedom to do what they do best and then it will grow itself yeah it was that's, amazing that's really good point. they like they attract developers from all over the world and these people just keep turning up these amazing developers mm. just, just keep shipping them in because they knew about what cake were doing and they wanted to be they wanted to work on this kind of tech so they're still great, and they're still they're still there in Manchester as Disney. So, you know, mm. if someone wants is interested in that as a career, then um, yeah, take a look. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just like you guys learned loads. But um, just before we get onto that, then did it come to a point where obviously, as a bigger company, it has changed. You've you've both done and seen a lot. Was it just the kind of timing, and and you guys got together and thought it's maybe just. A good opportunity to go and do something ourselves 
Yeah, so I'd been I'd been looking at doing something for for a few years before we started Fuzzy Labs, and um, originally it was going to be around a DevOps consultancy, and um, I'd uh, had to go up one of those uh, with somebody else, and it didn't quite work out. And then I went back to Cake or Disney as it was, and uh, and Matt and I had been chatting for a while. We we kept in touch, and and we'd meet for coffee and stuff, and talk about what was going on. And we both started talking about the kinds of things we were interested in doing. And the, the timing was just right. The timing was right. Matt was uh, interested in doing something on his own, um, interested in doing something with data and AI. And to join that with um, the DevOps discipline seemed seemed a really good thing, seemed a good fit, seemed the right time to do it. Mm. What stood out certainly to me as potentially one of the next big things in this field is that there's a huge amount of companies out there who have aspirations to do AI, to do big data and machine learning because it brings them efficiencies, because it saves them money or increases sales or whatever the motivation might be. But there's then a whole new set of challenges in how we actually productionize and scale these things. You know, we Tom mentioned Docker earlier. We, we've kind of got a pretty good idea of how to take an application, containerize it, and publish it to um, to a cloud environment and have all of its dependencies wrapped up. It's all very nice. It just kind of works. In this machine learning world, you know, you're instead of building executable programs, you're training models. And then the question comes, well, okay, how do I get these models into production? How do I talk to these models using a web application? How do I get my users how do I actually surface all of this work that the data science people have done and actually make that available to the users? And that was the that was the um, selling point for me that you know we, we could build a business around how to make artificial intelligence capabilities and machine learning something that's readily available, easily accessible, and to really focus on how do we productionize and scale these things. Okay, nice. So that was, that was going to be my next question. What was the kind of initial um, seed of the idea? Now that you've been going for, well, I think just over a year, has that kind of initial plan and thought, has that changed much or is that very much still the goal? I, it's not changed. I think what it's probably done is been refined by, by reality and by experience. So, you know, there, there's different companies are at different stages in terms of how they are adopting AI. There's a lot of companies who have come to us and said, we're thinking that maybe something like natural language processing or some kind of um, process automation might help us in this area. Could you tell us more about it? Could you tell us how to get started with it? But at the other end of the spectrum, we also have companies which have um, some capability already and what they're really interested in is, oh, okay, well, can we move this to the cloud? Can we deploy this in a containerized fashion? Can we do all of the DevOps around this stuff that we've already got? So in addition to that, and there being different companies at different stages, which require a different approach, and, and that's something we've had to kind of learn and figure out as we've gone along. And now, now that we've got a few clients under our belt, we've got probably a pretty good idea of how to differentiate our approach to different kinds of customers but there's also this notion that there's and we divide divide this up into three different categories of ai implementation and it depends on how bespoke the problem is 
So if you have a problem which lots of other people have, let's say it's I have some paper forms and I want to read what's on these forms, so digitize these forms, that's a problem which a huge number of people have. And therefore, it's also a problem that's been solved time and time again. And in fact, you can go to Google Cloud or AWS or Microsoft Azure and they already have an API that you can give it an image and it will give you back the text. So that's the sort of level zero, if you like, the pre-trained, pre-packaged AI models. And, you know, OCR is probably a pretty bad example because it's pretty pedestrian. But you also have things like um, sentiment analysis available as an API. You have basic image recognition available as an API. Or if you want to find faces in photos, all these kinds of common problems, they're already prepackaged um, as AI as a service. Then you have the situation where AI as a service will solve your problem, but the specifics are maybe a little bit more bespoke. So maybe there's already a pre-trained model that can tell you in general about objects it sees in a scene. So it can say, oh, that thing there is a bottle and that other thing there is a keyboard or a mouse or what have you. But what you really want is to take a photo of the back of a bar and you want it to tell you what brands that bar sells because you're doing market research or something along those lines. And that's where you might say, okay, I'm going to collect lots of training data for my problem and I'm going to give it to one of these you know, auto ML like services like Google's auto ML or the various other cloud providers have their, their equivalences. And then you'll get um, a model and you'll get an API you can hit and get back a result. You've not really done much more work than you had to do before. Most of the work has gone into cu collecting, curating and labeling the data, which is actually one of the really hard problems in this space anyway. And you've avoided all of the, oh, I have to write my own code to do the training or I have to deploy this service. You don't need to do any of that because it's already there. The next level up from that is where what you're trying to do is genuinely bespoke. Uh, so we, uh, for instance, did some work in the medical field where what we want to do without going into all of the details, we want to figure out something about the tissue composition of a wound. So you take a photo of this wound and you want to figure out what tissues does this wound contain? You know, is it necrotic or is it macerated and things like that? That's where you really, it, it's very much uncharted territory, what you're trying to solve there. So we did end up doing quite a lot of bespoke work. Even then we're leveraging frameworks, right? You know, we leverage, for example, PyTorch or something like that, but we're not just throwing images at a service and then getting back a, an API. We've had to learn to, to differentiate the services a little bit. And I think when we started, we we're talking about, well, yeah, there's AI in general, but we couldn't offer any concrete, you know, here's how you do it for your problem. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think when we last spoke as well, you said one of the problems, and I think you alluded to it a, a little bit ago, um, but one of the problems in the world of kind of machine learning and AI is that there is no, uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there is, but there's not kind of a process involved for getting things into production. Like it's very much kind of, it's a bit messier than it is in software development and in kind of DevOps culture. Is that where you think that you guys can potentially add quite a lot of value kind of getting things I don't know, just having more of a process. I like to think so, yeah. Tom, do you want 
jump in. Yeah, well, would, would you, like, you know, what we're, what we're aiming for is to do what we do in software engineering is have, have essentially CI/CD for for machine learning. So, you know, if somebody automatically updates um, the Jupyter notebook or the algorithm that they're using or the new training data, it can automatically trigger this pipeline which goes and builds a new model and deploys it and versions it. So then you can test that model against and make sure it's not regressed and have all that good stuff that allows you to roll it back easily. And right now is a lot of that kind of done either manually or like people start from scratch or how do people approach that problem now? There's tools and frameworks out there. I mean, we're looking at, I mean, Google Cloud have their own AI platform, which does a lot of this heavy lifting for you. And that's based on a, a thing called Kubeflow, which is a Kubernetes-based machine learning framework. But it's all pretty new. And so there's, you know, it, it seldom works straight out of the box. So we're figuring out at the moment our ideal recipe of things that we can you know, efficiently re- reuse with different clients and give them the best value. Yeah, okay. Um, and just take, a, take it back a little step to when the company first came about. Um, it's always interesting to speak to, to founders about the process of setting the business up, but also kind of naming the business. So was that an easy decision? What, what, where did Fuzzy Labs come from? Matt sent me a text on, um, I think it was New Year's Eve or New Year's Day last year and said, I've got a great idea for the, I've got a great name for the business. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That was it. I, but you could explain the reason. Yeah, so there was there was probably two pages of possible names and like they were all rubbish. So I was messing around with lots of themes. Fuzzy Labs is a reference to fuzzy logic. Yeah. And you know, early on in the history of, of artificial intelligence, this was one of the approaches people wanted to take to build machines which can make decisions based on incomplete information. So rather than being able to say yes or no, true or false. We want to be able to express some degree of uncertainty. So it could be maybe this picture is a cat, you know, 80% sure of that. So it, it's fuzzy. Yeah, okay, no, I like that. Um, and I thought that's maybe where you stem from, but wasn't. I wanted to make sure. I was going to go into the fact that we're in a global pandemic, but let's quickly avoid that. And um, we will get to that. But how has it been... It might be similar for what you've already done, Tom, as a contractor, but how has it been, uh, I suppose, for you, Matt, going from managing a team of software engineers, uh, working on various different problems of various different sizes at a pretty big company, to essentially becoming CTO, head of sales, everything else that comes in with setting up a company? Like, How has that transition been for for both of you? I mean, I've I've had to acquire and wear many hats, for sure. Um, I... Yeah, I, it's been a huge amount of learning for me, it, um, both in terms of the skills necessary to actually do things. So, you know, basic accounting, time management tools that maybe I wouldn't have needed to use before, um, you know, being really disciplined about simple things like using a calendar for absolutely everything so that I can keep track of it. Um, and then, yes, sales. And, and there's all these soft skills, you know, how do I run a sales meeting? I had absolutely no idea. I still think I have no idea, but at least I'm, I feel a bit more comfortable with it now than I did a year ago. Uh, there's also the, the reality that I'm probably not as good with people as Tom is. So, you know, we've had to work out a bit of a dynamic for how we, how we run sales meetings. And I think Tom does more of the charming people and I just deliver facts in a robotic fashion. Banter. 
Tom, Tom brings all the banter. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that is true, but Matt, you spoke at Man Kamel and it was just like, it was genuinely hilarious and like really insightful. And you definitely had the most questions from any talk that we've had for a long time. So I think you've given yourself a disservice a little bit. This is the irony of it. Matt does all the talks. I can't do any of the talks. Matt does all the talks and, and we we most the work as a result of those. <laughs> Um, but no, it's interesting when you speak to people who are running out uh, kind of on their own. I, I mean, there is so many different things to do. And you've both said already that kind of what you both really like doing is the technical work. So I'm sure it is good to maybe get to do more of that when the projects come in. But I suppose it's learning all the other stuff at the same time, which I suppose brings us on a little bit to coronavirus. So I'm sure not ideal for a small fledgling organization um, in some ways, but I, I'm sure in other ways, actually not not as bad as maybe some other companies. So um, uh, how have you guys kind of been coping through it? Uh, and has it been okay? I mean, we've been really lucky, to be honest, Liam. I mean, we've, we, um, I suppose the first six, seven months of, of setting up, we were, we were pretty quiet. We didn't have a lot of work on. And um, but now we've got our name out there. We've got some good content out. We've done the talks at Mancamel. People start to know about us. And, and yeah, our, pipe, our pipeline's built up. And the last few months, we've been, we've been, well, this all year, we've been really busy. And our pipeline's looking good. Um, I suppose it depends what industries you're working with. I mean, one of our clients works in advertising and they slow down a bit, as you might imagine, because people aren't selling as much stuff. So yeah. we don't need any any help with the, the data side of that. Um, but the other client that Matt talked about before is medical client. You know, there's no, they're still going full ahead with it. So we've, yeah, we've been, we've been lucky. The, I suppose the only, the only thing we've been a bit cautious of, we were looking to recruit before we started, uh, before before the lockdown. And we've sort of held back on that just out of caution for, you know, it's hard to do business or harder to do business development when you're not physically meeting people. Yeah. So just, just we've held back on that a little bit, but I, we're, I expect we'll be going for it again once, once we can get out there and start getting our hands on people. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think you're right. I mean, it, we've noticed that, kind of because we don't have a particular niche in terms of who we recruit for it it's just like uh, mostly smes but kind of across different industries i think if you work in for example the fuzzy labs were the go-to ai experts for the whole travel industry then you'd be like thinking shit this is really serious mm-hmm. um but if you have a nice mixture of clients then you can kind of pick up more work with some and, uh, and keep the relationships going with others while they kind of work out what on earth is going on um and we've noticed that. I mean, we had a lot of people that said, we're just going to see how this goes for the first two, three months and then plan for the rest of the year from there, which is what people are starting to do, I think. Um, mm. So, yeah, the fact you managed to kind of get to May and, uh, and still be busy um, is great. And I think it's it's partly because of the timing as well. You know, if this had been this time last year, it would have been pretty disastrous for us because we were just getting started. But here, I, it's... We're in a fortunate position at the moment. Yeah, no, it's good. And one of the things I was going to mention is kind of plans to grow in the team. And I know you guys are are looking to do that. So, I mean, is there aspirations for this to be, I don't know, uh, a a lot of people doing some great work under the Fuzzy Labs name? Or or do you think that we'll stay as maybe like 10 or less? Like, is there there a goal in mind? um, Or are you just going to take it how it comes? Personally, I don't know. I, you know, we're definitely going to hire some people. I don't think that there's a specific goal to be, you know, a multinational company in three years or anything silly like that. Um, <laughs> let's, let's think um, realistically. But what I do think is that the 
if you like the secret formula that I have in mind for building a successful tech business and it's not my formula it's one that I've learned from better people around me some of the best advice we got starting off was from somebody we respect quite a lot who said don't sell don't try and do sales rather be really good at what you do and show it so talk about it blog about it actually demonstrate that we are good engineers and we can deliver and then the the work will naturally follow and i think if we can build a good engineering team on that ethos people who are well respected not just as engineers within that team but also in the community by doing talks and and things like that, that we've been doing at the moment uh, that that would be fantastic and you know the size of that team should be one that can sustain the quality for me yeah i mean definitely i think the plan is to, to grow organically with no no ambition to you know look for funding and you know throw get higher 50 engineers and all this kind of thing it's it's like gross get the right people at the right time but the, the, the our first hire is going to be really important you know we want yeah. somebody who's it's just going to add so much more to to what to what we to what we do and help us grow the team and and the quality of what we want to bring in is, is is really important. We want to be known for what we for the quality of what we do. We're very transparent about the work we do. You know, most of our code is on GitHub. We don't put our clients' code on GitHub, but all of our proof of concept work and all our own internal stuff as well. That stuff, yeah, is is all out there to have a look oh, at. We know yeah. we're scrutinised. Yeah, no, I like that. And yeah, was one of the next questions was going to be that you've both kind of done a lot of recruitment. So how, how do you go around building a team? But I think you've both kind of answered it there really well that. Uh, do some really good quality work and, and Matt you said earlier one of the big things you learned from Cake that resulted in all these people coming from all over the world was that you hire very very good people and other good people will follow if you give yeah. them the kind of freedom to do so yeah absolutely um, which I think is a really good lesson and I suppose uh, you said the first hire is going to be really important culture wise is there anything you guys have learned from all of the places you've worked especially Tom being a contractor and uh, being in different countries as well that you've maybe learned or, or thought would be great when you're running your own company or do you think culture just happens by hiring very very good people and uh, and letting them kind of flourish i mean the definition of good is 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 quite open to interpretation i mean there's there's good at at the technical side of it but if somebody's technically amazing but really hard to get on with or you know wants to go and fiddle with obscure stuff that isn't necessarily producing any value then then they're not the right person so they've got to be able to they've got to be technically capable but they've got to be able to get stuff done as well and Ideally, I'd like them to be fairly humble. You know, I don't want anybody that's too arrogant telling us that they that they know everything already and that they're not they're not open to learning. We 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 need people that that are aware that there's so much more out there that they don't know. I mean, there's so much we don't know, and we've been doing this for twenty years. So you know, we want we want that mindset of always being hungry for for to to learn new stuff and not being afraid of 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 asking potentially stupid questions. Yeah, it's almost like Matt's lesson from university where you don't actually learn how to code doing a software engineering degree. <laughs> you learn that when you get your first job. So anyone coming into Fuzzy Labs, yeah, you want someone that's a bit more open to learning. That makes sense. And I, I suppose kind of going on the back of that, I mean, for the rest of 2020 and kind of maybe early into next year, is the plan just to keep on doing what you have been doing and get some more clients on board, get the pipeline kind of continuing to look positive and then just see where it takes you? Yeah, we have got a bit of a strategy. We sort of we set a target mid-year this year to potentially focus on a, on some markets, on some yeah. industries, um, and I think we're close to making that decision. And maybe that'll influence how we, the content we write on our website, and who who we target that stuff to. 
So that's that's really interesting. I think, and then being known for being good at those industries and those types of implementations will help us to grow and scale. Yeah, I think so. And have you learned um, anything? I mean, I suppose because it's the two of you and you get on so well and you know how each other work, it's potentially not hugely relevant. But have you learned through all of this coronavirus stuff about the kind of benefits of home working and flexibility or was that always in the kind of roadmap for Fuzzy Labs anyway? We're kind of forced into this. So I'm not sure. I mean, yes, so home working and having the flexibility to do home working is beneficial in normal circumstances being forced into it can be difficult psychologically you know i yeah yeah i had to and i, I think tom's the same i uh, i didn't set the right boundaries and schedule for myself so i would just keep working there would be no transition between work and non-work for a while and i'm still trying to get that balance right you know these are not ordinary circumstances to have home working let's say yeah but there's definitely, but I mean, having, I think we've learned that you can have a better balance. You don't have to go into the office every day. You know, that commute, however long it takes you, isn't necessarily the best use of your time. If you know what you're doing that day and you're trusted to get on with it, then work from wherever you want. It doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. But I think you need a good balance. I mean, if, for me, if I was in, I've got a nice, nice home office, but just being here all day on my own without that interaction, you know, you do get a bit insular. So I'd, I'd like to, you know, get out and see the buzz of the city uh, a couple of times a week, and and you know, just get the energy going. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I've I've been getting a little bit. Um, I suppose it's not right to say I'm getting pissed off, but like I find it strange that there's so much clamour for like a hundred percent remote work because I just know personally, like I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's different if you are in something like software engineering where like the quiet time and the ability to focus is actually really important. Whereas my job's the opposite. Like it's there's like a kind of buzz to being in the office. But I think the the companies that will come out of this really positively will be the ones that have a much more blended approach like you said tom kind of you can come into the office if your schedule dictates it and, and if it's needed um, or if you just fancy like coming in and seeing people and, and being in the city i think those people will do better but from a technical recruitment point of view i would imagine that the companies that are a little bit more flexible will hire better people as a result because they don't have to be i mean as an example you don't have to be a scala developer in manchester you could be a scala developer somewhere else yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, as, as long as you've got the right communication channel set up and all that stuff's there now, there's no, there's no, there's no reason not to be able to do it. Um, yeah, and good people, you know, they they want the flexibility. They don't, you don't, you shouldn't need to have to say to them, "These are your hours. This is where you need to work." You know, you'd set them an objective, and some, and and give them the, the reason for doing it and what they're aiming for, and let them get on with it. And you're there, yeah. you're there for them when 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 they need the help. That's very. Um, that's a very kind of easy one for you guys as well because it's really simple to know if someone's doing well or not because you're delivering something for a client so it's either delivered to a high standard or it's not so from your guys point of view yeah it's much more about objectives right than just kind of being there face time i hate that yeah being at the desk it's like yeah as you say it's all about what you've delivered and if, if you could deliver you know if you said right this is what i'm going to deliver in this week and everyone said that's fine that's you and you did that in two days great you know <laughs> relax for the rest of the week almost you know you've you've, you've done it yeah and Matt, do you think the kind of same does the same thing roughly with the the ability to kind of plan your own time, and especially in software engineering, you've you've managed teams. So is that do you think that's how you get the most out of a software engineering team? Kind of they've got tasks to do, and if they need help, they can ask you. I think so. I think it's it's important that people recognise that programming and software development 
is a social activity. I think there's, you know, and <laughs> there's a certain amount of programmers out there who would like to think it's not a social activity. That if you give me, let's say, implement this API, I will go away for two weeks and sit in a room and implement this API. And as long as you don't distract me, I'll get it done. That That's the attitude that I think some more naive engineers might have. But actually, successful delivery of a software project is a social activity. It requires frequent communication between people to ensure that the final thing delivered is actually what we want in the first place. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Actually, I wasn't going to ask this, uh, but it came to my head when we were discussing something there. Uh, I suppose from both points of view, what do you think the so the best way is maybe not right, because I'm sure every company is slightly different, but what, what do you kind of think the most successful way of interviewing people looks like, especially now in 2020, in comparison to maybe even five years ago? I mean, I've, I've actually done a lot of interviews for people in other parts of the world where we made hiring decisions purely on the basis of a couple of phone calls because yeah. it's really practical to bring them in from say India or um, Vietnam to to our office for, a, for an interview yeah. now I think regardless of how you do interviewing whether it's in person or remote the crucial thing if you're inter- interviewing engineers is they must code they absolutely must during the interview write code while being observed you know you can talk about it you can pair on it but if you don't see an engineer writing code and demonstrating that they actually can, it doesn't matter how good they look on paper. You know, you, you could make some very bad decisions on the basis of not seeing them actually write code. And do you think, that's, uh, I, mean, I totally agree, but do you think that it's less important about what they're actually asked to do? So, I mean, you see all these people that get like, six-hour tech test to take home after a half an hour interview with the engineer manager even before the engineer manager speaks to them like uh, there's obviously there's a nice balance to have there but i think what you said kind of doing live codes on a call if it's peer programming or if it's just solving a kind of challenge in their own language as a as someone that's done that and as an experienced engineer yourself is it quite easy to find out within half an hour an hour maybe if someone's any good you can tell within five minutes usually you can it's pretty, it's pretty obvious when someone knows what they're doing just by the way they're set up. The way yeah. they're doing, it's even more obvious. Well, when, when you say when they don't know what they're doing, Matt, it's well, even more obvious. You can, <laughs> you, can, you can make the no decision very quickly, I find, with an engineer. You know, if they get to the interview and say, right, open up your favorite text editor or IDE or whatever you use for programming, open it up. And if, if they don't have a computer that's set up for programming, that's already a bad sign, and that's probably a no at that point, then, you know, if we give them a challenge like something very trivial, like FizzBuzz, which there's lots of controversy over, of course, you know, this is good programmers will write that as quickly as they can type. The programmers who can't write that during an interview are probably definitely ones you don't want to hire, in my view. Um, and so from a kind of DevOps perspective, is that a similar process if you were hiring people on a DevOps kind of team? Um, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that the I suppose you don't need to be as good a programmer for DevOps as you do for for software engineering. But I think it's a slightly softer approach. Personally, I'd want to spend a bit more time talking to people about the things they've done and discussing opinions. I think that's probably more the way more the way to go. You know, talk about what kinds of things they've used and see how opinionated they are or aren't. I mean, ideally, people have preferred tools, but they'll be open to using lots of different things. I mean, that's yeah. an example of doing that stuff, you know, 
yeah, yeah. yeah. it's worth mentioning that is it's true for software development as much as it is for for devops um and one i like to ask also is you know how do you keep on top of technology how do you know what the next big thing is just to see people's general curiosity and i think yeah. tom you mentioned a good point earlier that somebody could be amazing technically but if they're like if they're a bit of a dick or they're just going to like a bit of a prima donna or whatever, then you don't want to bring them, especially into a team of two people to make it three people. So that's where the programming part of it almost doesn't even matter. Like it'd be great to see that, make sure they're good, but then you want to spend that little bit of extra time. Like how is this person? Yeah. You, you, you want to enjoy who you work with. I mean, you want to come to work and be motivated because you think the person's good and you like them. Um, we don't have to be best friends with them, but you've got to, there's got to be something that you, that, that you get out of them. If they're, they're a negative, and um, they bring everybody down, then what's the, you know, they might be the best program in the world, but you don't want them in the team. Yeah, no, exactly. All right, well, I think that was a, a good overall view of, of Fuzzy Labs and, and how it started and, and what you guys have done. So um, uh, thanks for coming on. Um, just so everybody knows as well, where's the best place to keep in touch with the, the Fuzzy Labs content? Um, is there any kind of social media pages that are more prevalent than others? Uh, we probably do more on LinkedIn than anything else. Uh, I mean, we're not the best marketers in the world. We, we do a few tweets when we can remember. Um, <laughs> we put our blogs on Medium and on our website, fuzzylabs.ai. Nice. Um, but yeah, link, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is probably, is probably you know, we try and post some more eclectic content on there now and again, as well as some of the, the machine learning or AI-focused stuff. No, some of it's been great. And, and you mentioned that you put all your um, kind of internal and proof of concept code on GitHub as well. Is that easy to find as well, just GitHub, Fuzzy Labs? Yes. Yeah, on the website, there's a code button at the top, so you can just click on there from fuzzylabs.ai. Nice. All right, well, thanks very much for coming on. I'm sure we'll get a follow-up to the AI for your feet from Matt when we're allowed to do ManCamel again. And it's going to be cool to see what you guys what you guys do. And, and you mentioned kind of some potential repositioning stuff in the summer, so keep an eye out for that as well. Good stuff. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much, Liam. Those are uh, just two good guys, right? Uh, I really hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did recording it and chatting to the guys. Um, I can really see them making Fuzzy Labs another really uh, really great Manchester success story when it comes to technology and uh, data in particular. Um, so yeah, I can't, see, I can't wait to see what happens with them. Go give them a follow uh, on social media. I'm sure we'll have them back at Man Camel and Matt did a AI for your feet talk which went down really well and thank you for listening um, and continuing to show the podcast some love uh, and thanks again to Cathcart Associates for sponsoring making it all possible um, I'll see you all soon